Welcome to the Beacon broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com, beaconbaptist.com. The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. Today we return to John chapter 17 and the account of Christ's high priestly prayer, which is marvelous. All of God's Word, of course, is marvelous, but there's something about this prayer that is particularly insightful, informative, powerful. I feel many times like I'm treading on exceedingly holy ground when I tiptoe into this particular chapter. This is Christ praying at the end of his upper room discourse. He is praying in the presence of his apostles who are listening to him pray, all of them except for Judas, who has been dismissed. He is speaking these words to his heavenly Father, but they tell us oh, many, many things about Christ himself, about God the Father, about the apostles of Jesus Christ, and indeed about all believers in Jesus Christ, as well as tell us quite a few things about the world. We notice that the posture of the prayer is one of him lifting up his eyes to heaven. We don't know whether he was sitting, reclining, or standing when he did that, but he did shift his gaze, his attention away from the apostles and directed it conspicuously to the Father above, and he addressed God, the Father, in this prayer as Father several times, one, two, three, four times, Holy Father one time, and Righteous Father one additional time. And we'll continue now studying this marvelous prayer of our Lord, this high priestly prayer, on this Sunday, November 26, grateful for the opportunity grateful for your presence, and grateful for the financial help of radio listeners like you that keep us teaching on the station. Well, as far as the contents of this prayer, we can divide it generally into three parts. In verses 1 through 5, we find Jesus praying for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he's praying for his apostles, and in verses 20 through 26, he's praying for all his people. So, Christ and all of his people are included in this prayer. And that would include you if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The concept of glory and glorify is mentioned several times throughout this prayer. And other substances. Other other subjects are also mentioned conspicuously in this prayer, but we shall get into them in proper season. 
So let's begin with the first five verses where Christ is praying for himself. Here's what we read. Oh, I didn't welcome you, did I? Yes, I did. I already welcomed you to this Sunday, November 25, or 26, rather, Beacon Broadcast. All right, here's what we read. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That's the first section, the first petitions, the first prayer of Jesus that has to do with himself and his relationship to his heavenly Father. Let's take a look at this verse by verse. In verse number one, clearly, the cross is in view, but notice how Christ puts it. Father, the hour has come. That language has been used many times throughout the Gospels and always referring to his coming crucifixion. We read on several occasions that Christ was close to death. People were coming in upon him to take him and to kill him, but they were not able to do so because, why? His hour had not yet come. They couldn't kill him until the appointed time. They couldn't throw him off the cliff and dash his body to death. They couldn't seize him and stone him to death as they no doubt wanted to do on several occasions. They tried to capture him and to kill him, but they could not because his hour had not yet come, but now it has. Father, the hour has come. The hour, the fatal hour, the (laughs) fatal, yes, but the triumphant hour, the most important hour, and hour, of course, means time. It is a relatively short period of time, but of course, Christ's death upon the cross took more than 60 minutes. So oftentimes when you find language like this in Scripture, it must be understood in an idiomatic way, not in an exact literal way. But the hour in which he's going to be crucified, the hour in which he's going to die. There's going to be a particular point in time while he's on the cross where he's going to pray, Father, I commend my spirit to you. Into your hands I commend my spirit. And he will dismiss his spirit and he will die. That, of course, takes place within a particular hour. But that particular act of the actual moment of his death takes only a few seconds, actually, when it occurs. So, hour can be construed as being more than an hour. If we're talking about the whole, the whole um, collection of events that brought about his death upon the cross, his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his march out to Golgotha, his being nailed upon the cross 
his hanging upon the cross for several hours, the words that he spoke, the amazing things that he accomplished, his his uh, saving the thief who cried out to him in repentance and faith and who was promised that he would be with Christ that day in paradise, his committing his mother into the care of the disciple John and so forth, so many things that took place. And they took place over a period of many hours, but all of this is referred to as the hour. Finally, this momentous time has come. Father, the hour has come. In fact, I could point out that this language, like some others, similar language that we read in the Gospels, means that it is impending and imminent and very near. But the actual events of his crucifixion had not yet come, but he speaks of them as if they are here. The hour has come. And who would argue that that's not an accurate statement? Because when he finishes this prayer, he walks out to the Mount of Olives, to the garden, and there he is betrayed by Judas with a kiss and arrested by the soldiers and carried away to the high priest's house for his first trial and so forth through the various trials that he endured until finally Pilate committed him to the soldiers who carried out the crucifixion, but committing him really to the Jews, acquiescing to their demands that this man be crucified, and he was eventually nailed to the cross, and in the passing of some hours, he died. The hour has come. But here's what he says about this hour. We look at that and we, we think of different things when we think about the hour of Christ's death upon the cross. And many times we think about it in terms of its injustice, and that is certainly one aspect of it. We think about it in terms of its its pain and suffering, how intense that was, how unimaginably painful and difficult it was, really beyond our imagination, our, our ability to understand. But we do know that it was the cruelest form of execution that the Romans could come up with. They, they followed this particular form of execution for the very purpose of making it exceedingly agonizing in a public way, always done in public, and Christ, of course, was crucified in public, right outside the city walls on a major road where where hundreds of people would pass by, thousands perhaps would pass by while he hung upon the cross. And the Romans had devised that as a way of striking fear, striking terror into the hearts of those who were under their rule, lest others be guilty of insurrection or disobeying the laws of Rome in some serious way. And so it was the most agonizing form of execution that probably has ever been devised. I, I have read that a number of times, and I have no reason to doubt it. I can't think of another form of execution that would be more agonizing. And yet, notice how Christ characterizes this in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. 
with the cross in view and thinking about what's going to take place on the cross, Christ prays for the Father to glorify his Son. In other words, to glorify him in this act of execution upon a Roman cross. Now, what does it mean to glorify the Son? What does it mean to glorify anyone? Well, it means to exalt them, to magnify them, to give honor to them, to clothe them in majesty and splendor. Can you imagine? These are the these are the things that Christ is praying for about the cross, and yet we look at the cross, we don't see exaltation, we see humiliation. We don't see Christ being magnified, we see him being degraded. We don't see Christ being honored, we see him receiving the most the highest possible dishonor that it was possible for humanity to give him at that time. We don't see him clothed in majesty and splendor. We see him unclothed in humility and shame. And yet, Christ's prayers are not not his prayer, singular, I guess, in this case. His prayer is not going to be denied. It's not going to go unanswered. The son's prayers are always answered exactly the way he prays them. So what could Christ have in mind when he prays for the son to be glorified in the hour of his crucifixion? Well, I'm sure there are a lot of things that I've never even touched upon or thought about, but I will suggest several that I have thought about so that you can see, at least in part, what Christ must have or may have had in mind when he prayed this particular petition. What was seen upon the cross? How did the cross glorify the Son as Christ prayed to the Father, glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you? Well, upon the cross of Christ, we see the magnification of the love of Christ. Surely nobody would would disagree with that subject, with that, with that statement. Yes, to glorify means to magnify, and though in one sense he was being anything but magnified in the eyes of the world, nevertheless, for those who have eyes to understand what's going on here, the love of Christ is being magnified beyond degree. The love of Christ is being seen to be the most amazing love that has ever existed. It is um, a a magnanimous love. It is an infinite love. It is the love of Christ toward the Father, because the reason he went to the cross was in order to please his heavenly Father, because the Father loves him, and he loves the Father without any degree of of, uh, holding back. He loved the Father, the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, to a degree that none of us have ever yet experienced, except we who are the recipients of Christ's love and and can understand, at least in part, of what Christ did for us upon the cross, we can understand the, the uh, bounty, the magnificence of this love, at least to some degree. But we're not capable of this kind of love. I want to go on record as telling you that by God's kindness and his wonderful working in my heart and in the circumstances of my life, 
I am one who loves my wife greatly. I love my wife dearly. I love her more today, and we've been married for 53 years now. I love her more today than I have ever loved her. I love her more today than I loved her when in her youth and her loveliness as a beautiful young woman. In my eyes, she's still a beautiful, beautiful lady. She's not a young, beautiful woman in the, in the sense that many times you know, people in the world view beauty and express their love for feminine beauty, usually thinking about the beauty of youth. And as people age, it's inevitable that that youthful beauty is going to change I'm not the handsome young man I was when my wife and I got married. She's not the beautiful, beautiful bride. I tell you, as, I, as I'm thinking back, even speaking these words, I'm thinking back to the way she looked at that time. And I have photos to remind me of it from time to time. And I love, I love to look at those photos to see what we looked, looked like in our youthful love for one another. And it was a strong love at that time. And yet I'm here to tell you that both of us would testify that our love for each other has grown magnificently over these 53 years so that I do indeed love my wife more than I have ever loved her in all of these years. And yet I'm conscious of the fact that first, in the first place, I don't love her as much as I should because the way I should love her is as much as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, Ephesians chapter 5. A sacrificial love that is the ultimate sacrifice, and that's what we're talking about in the glory of Christ upon the cross. The glory of his love is, is placarded. It is publicized. It is demonstrated in such a way that he is greatly glorified. No, I have not yet loved my wife as much as Christ loved the church. I have not yet loved my wife as much as I am am commanded to love my wife. I, I'm sure that I don't love my wife as much as I, as I should because I'm still in the flesh. I'm still in this body of sin I still have I'm still dragging around this old na- old nature even though I've been given a new nature and this old nature nature is going to drop when I when I get to heaven and I'll be able to love with an unhindered love at that time because there will be no sin no selfishness no n- nothing petty nothing to keep me from from an infinite love and yet at that time my love now able to to be expressed uh, without any defects whatsoever is not going to be directed toward my wife as much as it is toward my Savior. He will receive the greatest degree of my love. And yet, in another sense, I'm going to love all of God's people in that day in a way that I've never loved them up until this time. And that certainly will include my wife. And I am a little bit what should I say, a little bit uh, perplexed as to exactly what my relationship will be with my wife in heaven, but I know that it's not going to be a husband-wife relationship. Is it po- Because Jesus makes that clear. He said the Sadducees were 
greatly mistaken in their little illustration, the little parable that they like to tell in order to prove that the doctrine of the resurrection was, was impossible and was foolish about the man who married and his wife died without their having children, so he married his brother's wife and they didn't have any children and so forth through seven wives. And they said, in, in heaven, whose wife will she be? She's been the wife of seven, uh, seven men. Wait a minute. Have I got that thing right? I'm, I'm thinking it back through now. No. Um, yeah, yeah. She marries the brother. It's not the, the, yeah, she marries the brother and another brother and another brother, seven brothers. And so she's had seven husbands on earth legitimately. We're not talking about, about divorce and remarriage. We're talking about the law of Leverite marriage, legitimate marriages. She's had seven husbands upon earth. Whose husband Whose wife will she be? Who will be her husband when they get to heaven? And Jesus said, you do err. Not knowing either the scriptures or the power of God. And in heaven, there will be no marriage. But we'll be like the angels in the sense that no marriage is needed because no reproduction is needed. There won't be any new babies coming along in heaven. There won't be any need for that. We've got to have that now, or the earth death would wipe out the population if there were no births to replace the deaths. So there won't be any marriage in heaven. Jesus said we'll be like the angels. Now, in what way will we be like the angels? In that there's no death. Angels don't marry. Angels don't reproduce because there's a fixed number of angels and they never die. That number never changes. And so that's the way it's going to be in heaven. There'll be no death there, so there'll be no need for, for multiplication, for, re, for reproduction in heaven. So there won't be any marriage in heaven. That's the sense in which we'll be like the angels. We won't be exactly like them in every way, but we'll be like them in this way. Angels don't marry. Angels don't reproduce. And in heaven, there will be no marriage because we don't reproduce. But does that mean that we won't have any, what should I say, closer relationship to our spouse upon earth when we're in heaven? I don't know. That particular question isn't answered. I don't think it's ruled out by what Jesus said. He doesn't say, when he says there won't be any marriage in heaven, he doesn't say, everybody's going to relate to everybody else in exactly the same way and degree. He doesn't say that. Some would think that's what he means, or that's what he implies by what he says, but I don't think that's exactly what is said, but I don't know. That, that, that's one of those unanswered questions. So what I'm getting at is I don't know if, if I will ever be able to love my wife as my wife the way I should, because when we get to heaven and I'm now fully sanctified and sinless and able to love in a perfect love without any hindrance whatsoever, I won't be married to my wife. I won't, I won't love her as a wife in those days. So I don't care who among the sons and daughters of men has a huge degree of love for someone else, and surely some have a great love for, for another, and surely we can, we can be observant enough to know that some people 
have a greater love for their spouses than others do. But nobody, here's the point, nobody loves like Jesus loves. And nobody has manifested that perfect love that Jesus did. And the culmination, the epitome of the demonstration of that love is when he dies upon the cross, such an agonizing, cruel death, dying for sinners, dying in the place of sinners, dying for his people, dying for those whom he has loved with an eternal and everlasting love, loved by everlasting love, taught by grace that love to know. What an amazing, amazing display of an infinite love which Christ has first toward his Father, that he's willing to do this out of love for the Father, and secondly, for those who have been given to him by the Father, which comes up in this very passage that we're dealing with now. In other words, his elect people, those who make up his bride, he loves his bride more than anyone on earth has ever been capable of loving their bride. And all of that is going to be seen in this hour that has come. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. The love of Christ in his fullest degree is going to be seen upon the cross. The humility of Jesus, Christ the Son, is going to be seen in its fullest expression upon the cross. Paul describes that for us in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind, don't don't be proud, humble yourselves and get along with one another and, and love one another in the body of Christ like this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though being in the form of God, in, in every way, like God because he is God, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, didn't think holding on to the prerogatives and displays of his deity was a prize of such magnitude that he wasn't willing to turn it loose for a greater prize, and that's exactly what he did. So let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He, in claiming his equality with God, which was a rightful claim, he wasn't taking anything that didn't belong to him, but he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. That's the ultimate display of his humility. So here you have the Lord of the universe, the uncreated God, the eternal one, the creator who made all things. Here you have him demonstrating the utmost humility. That's mind-boggling to me. I think it will be to you too if you think about it. Upon earth, most of the people that we tend to honor and glorify are not those who are the most humble among us. They are often the ones who are the most proud among us, but proud of their achievements, and we laud their achievements as well. He's done well for himself. Look at how successful he's been in business. She's done well for herself. Look at how successful she's been in show business. He's achieved much. Look at how... how Successful he's been in sports, and on and on and on it goes. 
And we exalt those who are exalted in the eyes of the world and usually are thereby pretty much puffed up in pride with their human achievements. And yet Jesus Christ, the one who really is the most exalted of all, makes all these other achievements pale in comparison, who really is deserving of all glory and honor and power and worship and and submission, is also the most humble of all. His willingness to humble himself in, in the cross. Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son, that the Son also may glorify you. We'll take it up next week. Join me then. Until then, good day. May God give you his eternal peace.